Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, towards the, the end of the New Testament. Hebrews just chapter 1 will primarily be in verses 1 through 4 this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Now, Martin Luther did not set out on October 31st of 1517 to implode the Roman Catholic Church through revolution. But rather, he set out to purify the church through reformation. From its outset, the reformation, as a movement, was a project to rescue the simple and clear gospel of Jesus Christ from centuries of obfuscation and complication. Martin Luther loved the church, as did many of the other reformers, but they loved her purity and fidelity far more than they loved her majesty which is what set them against so many of the elite clergy in the Roman church of their day. Now, look, I'm well aware that by the very nature of the fact that we live in New Mexico, all of us, if, if not many of us, have Catholic friends and family, people who are members of the Roman Catholic Church. And some of us know, and I have in my life, many Jesus-loving Catholics who would affirm many of the solas of the Reformation that we've been looking at over the course of the month of October. And for that, we praise God. Against the temptation that a study like this in, in uh, the, the work of the Reformation, against the temptation that a study like this would encourage uh, to, to throw the Catholic Church under the bus, so to speak, at every point, I would hope instead today particularly as we look at this doctrine of Christ alone, to extend a hand of fellowship to our Catholic friends, particularly on this doctrine of Christ. For there's much that we share with Catholics in our understanding of the person and work of Jesus. And we're indebted in many ways to the Catholic Church for defending the purity of the doctrine of Christ, especially as that doctrine was threatened in the earliest centuries of the church by various heresies and heretics who were teaching uh, uh, false things about the person and work of Jesus. In fact, it was the Catholic Church who in 325 AD formulated what has been uh, one of the primary uh, orthodox understandings of Jesus from then forward even to today. Uh, a statement which they defended from the scriptures. We know the statement as the Nicene Creed. In the Nicene Creed, we read this in their section about what, they believe about what we believe about Jesus. And see if you don't yourself, Christian, agree with all of these. The Nicene Creed says, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So, and he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. So then whether, friend, you talk with your, uh, when, when you talk with your Catholic friends, know this. There is at the heart of our varied convictions a mutual affirmation of exactly who Jesus is. We all believe, Catholics and Protestants alike, that Jesus is the only Son of God, the Father, the second person of the triune God, having taken on humanity, now in flesh, who lived without sin, who fulfilled all the law of God, who died in the place of sinners and rose from the dead for our justification with God. We have this in common with our Catholic friends. The Reformation doctrine that we know in Latin is solus Christus, in English meaning Christ alone, 
then today completes for us the Reformation doctrine of salvation. That salvation, that justification with God is caused by God's grace alone, received through faith alone, in Christ alone. More specifically, we can say this today, that solus Christus, Christ alone, this theological conviction is meant, uh, is to mean that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God who by his life, death, and resurrection is the exclusive and sufficient Savior for sinners. Turning our attention to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. You may uh, have heard before that the book of Hebrews was authored by the Apostle Paul, but nowhere in the book of Hebrews, in this letter to the church, uh, is the author actually mentioned. In fact, some scholars think it, some think it could have been Paul. Some think it could have been Apollos that wrote this. Some think it could have been Barnabas. Maybe even the gospel writer and uh, early church historian Luke uh, could have written Hebrews. Irrespective of who wrote it, uh, what is true about Hebrews is it serves uh, far more as a sermon than it does a letter. A sermon about Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus uh, as the one and only exclusive and sufficient Savior. And so we turn our attention to the first few verses uh, of this letter this morning. As we do, would you stand with me in honor of reading God's word? Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 and continuing through verse 4. The writer of Hebrews says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much more as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. There are two things, two aspects of the the person of Jesus that we're going to look at uh, specifically today. That is his uniqueness, his exclusivity, and also his sufficiency. As we look at the one and only Jesus, we first see that he is unique. We see in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, a picture of the unique Jesus. As unique, he is the only son of God. The author of Hebrews from the very first sentence of this letter identifies Jesus as the son of God who reveals the father. We read there in verse two, God has spoken to us by his son through whom he created the world, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In understanding the uniqueness of Jesus, the Son of God, we are right to recognize that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. This is a, in, in, in theology throughout history, this has come to be known as the hypostatic union. That Jesus is at one time both God and man. 100% God, 100% man. As fully God, we see affirmed, even in the, the ancient Nicene Creed, which we read earlier, that Jesus is God from God, that he is light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. This core understanding of Jesus as divine, as God, comes from what we understand of Jesus from the very beginning of John's Gospel. John chapter 1, verse 1. This is how John begins his, his story of Jesus' life. 
He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Hebrews 1.3 tells us here the exact same thing, does it not? That Jesus is not just with God, that he is God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. There are many other places to which we could turn this morning to flesh this out further, but it'll just have to suffice that you take this on my recommendation to read this week. Uh, look at 1 John, uh, John's letter, chapter 1, talking about the, uh, the divinity of Jesus. Colossians 1, particularly verse, uh, verses 15 through 20. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 11. All of these things, that con- uh, all of these places confirm the exact same thing that we've seen this morning, that Jesus is the unique Son of God. He is God in flesh. You know, what is important to note is that Jesus is not just God in the flesh, but he's the only exclusive and unique individual of whom the scriptures can claim this fact or do claim this fact. Jesus, the son of God, is God just as the father and the Holy Spirit are. But he is distinct from God, the father and the spirit in personage. He is not just the father stepping out of heaven into humanity. God, the father still is in heaven as God, the son takes on flesh in the man, Jesus. Jesus is fully God, but he is also fully human. He's fully man. Again, the Nicene Creed confirms that Jesus was uh, the word made incarnate. He became human. As we read in John's gospel again, chapter 1, verse 14, John says, The word which was with the Father, which, uh, uh, the word, uh, which was in the beginning through which all was made, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John says. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. By the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, the Son of God takes on humanity as Mary virginally conceived him in her womb through the power of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 17 confirms that Jesus did not merely appear to be human, but was in fact human. It's not just like the, uh, the illusion of humanity, but is actual humanity that Jesus takes on. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 17. We read this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of the son, likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is not the the doctrine of of Christ's full divinity and full humanity in one person is not an adoption or or reappropriation of Greek mythology now applied to Christianity so that Jesus is somehow half God, half man, uh, like the, the, the Greek Uh, character Hercules, but rather Jesus is at the same time fully God and fully human in this way. Jesus stands as unique among all other presumed gods or demigods and also unique over all mankind. He's the one and only son of God made flesh. And as God, the son, Jesus represents the father perfectly. We read in Hebrews 1.3, he's the exact imprint of the nature of God. In Colossians 1.15, we read that he is the image of the invisible God. And we know from Jesus himself that as a faithful and obedient son to the Father who knows the Father, he does all that the Father tells him to do. 
In John's gospel, again, chapter five, Jesus heals a crippled man on the Sabbath. Jewish ruling elite didn't like that, weren't happy about that, set about to try to have Jesus killed for saying that he does the works that the father does, even on the Sabbath. In response to these accusations and those who are seeking to take his life at that time, Jesus says to those who are listening, truly, truly, I say to you, this is John chapter five, verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. As the son of God, Jesus gives unique access to the father because he knows the father. He hears the father. He knows the heart of the father and he does the things that the father tells him to do. We read in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus telling his own disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus' unique sonship gives him unfettered access to God the Father, which he then shares with those who trust in him. And Jesus is able to do this, to share this relationship he has with the Father, in part because he is the only covenant fulfiller. Now, throughout the Old Testament, we see God often regularly making promises to his people. And nearly all of the major promises that he gives to the people in the people of Israel in the Old Testament are specifically promises to save sinners and to renew their relationship with him, to be uh, united to his people. Jesus, the person of Jesus, son of God in flesh, is the perfect fulfillment and answer to all of these promises that we see in the Old Testament. Let's take a brief And by that, I mean brief survey of these. Jesus is first the fulfillment of the promise of a serpent crusher. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after Adam and Eve have uh, have sinned and, and fallen, God pronounces a curse upon the serpent, upon Eve, upon Adam, upon the land. And in part of God's curse against the serpent, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Friends, in his death and resurrection, Jesus fulfills the promise of a serpent crusher who defeats Satan, sin and death for all time. Not just that, but Jesus also fulfills the promise, the covenant of deliverance from God's wrath against sin. In Genesis 6 through 9, we have the story of the flood. God looks on the earth and he sees that the heart of man is only set on wicked things all the time. And so he decrees to send a flood to destroy all of humanity, everything on the earth, save for Noah and his family. After Noah comes through the flood, the ark uh, makes its way to a mountainside. God speaks to Noah and says this in Genesis 9, 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, look, this promise of God to delay his wrath against sin is so the, the, this promise of, uh, of not sending the flood again is, is not to say that God now no longer looks at sin, that God no longer judges sin. It is to say that God is going to delay his judgment against sin and not perform judgment by destroying all of humanity again. The promise of God to delay his wrath against sin in this way is centered on the fact that God is going to rightfully punish sin in his son, Jesus, on the cross. Jesus is the fulfillment of this covenant and that his death for sin maintains God's justice to punish sin and also to provide a way of salvation for those who trust in him. 
Jesus, thirdly, is the answer. He's the fulfillment of the covenant of blessing for the nations. In Genesis chapter 15, we see there God promising to bless all of the nations of the earth through Abraham and his offspring. When Jesus, the son of God, the descendant of Abraham, is raised from the dead, he commands that salvation be preached to all nations, irrespective of their lineage. Through Jesus, blessing comes to all nations. He is the uh, answer and fulfillment of the promise of God to be with his people. In Exodus 19, verse, uh, in Exodus chapters 19 through 24, we see there that after God has brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, he promises to make Israel his people to dwell among them. He gives them covenant laws that they are to follow as a boundary for their relationship with God. Jesus, unlike any of the Israelites that have ever lived, never breaks that law. He keeps God's covenant law perfectly. In fact, Hebrews 4, verse 15, tells us that Jesus, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. At the same time, Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God with us, who, as we saw in John 14, takes on flesh and dwells among us. He is the covenant in Exodus, with skin on, made public. He is also the answer, the fulfillment of God's promise of an everlasting king. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes another promise to King David that there will be a king on the throne of David forever who will be God's son. The Gospel of Matthew, a history of Jesus' life, emphasizes uh, Jesus from the first sentence of that gospel, that he is the son of David throughout the go- and throughout the gospel that he is the king of kings. This is how Matthew begins his gospel. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the fulfillment of a king forever on the throne of David. But he's also, and finally, the the fulfillment of the promise of forgiveness of sins and communion with God. In Jeremiah chapter 31, there Jeremiah, this prophet called by God to preach, to speak to the people of Israel as they've gone into exile in Babylon... There in Jeremiah 31, God promises through his prophet Jeremiah to make a new covenant with his people, to write his law on their hearts, to forgive their sins, that he might be known by his people again. What we do have in Jesus, the son of God, uh, is the very person of God among his people whose death and resurrection provides forgiveness of sins and and whose death and resurrection initiates the coming of the Holy Spirit of God to live in the hearts of those who trust the Son. Jesus, the only unique Son of God, is the perfect covenant fulfiller. Friends, know this this morning, that there is no difference between the Jesus of history and the Jesus of faith. The only and most reliable historic source of knowledge about Jesus is the authoritative and sufficient scriptures that we have in front of us that point us to Jesus, that allow us, that lead us to have faith in Jesus. Though cable TV and various journals and magazines would like to convince us otherwise, the unique son of God and covenant fulfiller is one and the same with the Jesus of the Gospels. So be not confused or misled, friend. This Jesus is unique, and he is the only, the exclusive Son of God made flesh. The phrase, often imitated, never duplicated, is a catchy phrase to stick on name brand laundry detergent. But I find the generic stuff to work just as well. 
Ignoring those stickers, often imitated, never duplicated, on name brand products is a cheaper way to wash your clothes, for sure. But it's a terrible way to go about seeking salvation for your soul. Oh, the unique Jesus is often imitated. His name is attached to worthless imitations in doomsday cults around the world. Deceived pseudo-Christian groups like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses peddle a distorted and impotent image of Jesus. But friend, know this. Though imitated by many, there is no adequate duplicate. There is no satisfactory generic version of Jesus who is powerful to save like the unique Jesus of Scripture is. The only Jesus is the unique Son of God. He is unique, but He is also sufficient. Let us look now at the sufficient Jesus. What I mean by this when I say that Jesus is sufficient is primarily that His work His sinless life, his death for sinners, his resurrection from the dead is enough. It is ample. It is satisfactory and adequate to save sinners from their sin and to reconcile them to God. Christ alone is our sufficient savior because his life was sinless. As the exact imprint of the father, Jesus is perfectly holy and sinless like the father. And because he has no sin separating him from the Father, Jesus, the Son of God, God in flesh, can serve as a perfect intermediary, a perfect priest for us to make intercession for us with God, to take us to the Father and to communicate the Father to us. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 28, we read this. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus' sinless life fulfilled all the righteous requirements of God's perfect covenant law. And because he is holy, blameless, innocent, unstained by sin, he can enter into the presence of God without fear of judgment for any sin. Fully God, he is the image of the perfect father. Fully man, he can offer perfect sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. And the sacrifice that he offers, the perfect sacrifice that he offers is his own death. His life was sinless. His death was a perfect sacrifice. Jesus does offer a better sacrifice. He offers himself. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, we read this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Here in these verses, the writer of Hebrews is referring to the day of atonement in Israel and the Israelite calendar. That day we know as Yom Kippur where the high priest of Israel would slaughter a bull for his own sins and then a goat for the sins of the people and present those, those sacrifices as a sacrifice to God for the forgiveness of his own sins and for the sins of the people. 
But Jesus, being a sinless and a perfect priest, is able to offer perfect sacrifices. Not only does he not need to receive forgiveness for any sin of his own, but he gives his own sinless life as God in the flesh as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. What Jesus does on the cross is not a replay of of what happens when an animal is sacrificed for a human. This isn't a lesser part of creation dying for the greater, but this is God made human giving his perfect life for our grotesque sins. What a sacrifice. All this serves to further clarify what was said of Jesus in Hebrews 1 verse 3, that he made perfect and sufficient purification for sins. Hebrews 1, 3, and in conjunction with chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, which we just read, outlines for us the important understanding for us that Jesus' perfect death for sinners provides atonement for sins. Atonement is a word that means at one or at oneness. It means that Jesus in his uh, perfect death in the place of sinners has made it possible to be, for us to be justified to God. For us to be declared righteous because of Christ's righteousness. We can be at one with the Father again. There is satisfaction for our sins through Jesus' perfect sacrifice. And his sufficient death for sinners never has to be repeated. Never has to be replayed because of its perfection. It is, as the author of Hebrews says, once for all. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 11 through 14. The writer of Hebrews says this, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Here he's referring to the ongoing practice of, uh, of sacrificing animals for the forgiveness of sins that was going on uh, in the temple uh, in Jerusalem before it was uh, destroyed in the year 70 A.D. Verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In verse 18 of the same chapter, we read this, that where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. So while we share a common conviction about the person of Jesus with our Catholic friends, we do differ on the application of Christ's atoning death. We understand that Christ died once for all time and that by faith in him, his righteousness is credited to us. We looked at that, the understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith alone last week. His righteousness is credited to us. Our sins are forgiven. We receive the grace of God in salvation as we trust Jesus. But slightly differently, the Roman church in Luther's day and even now holds that at the mass particularly uh, in the sacrament of the Eucharist, uh, something else is going on. It is in the Eucharist that Catholics hold that that Christ's sacrificial death for sinners is perpetuated through the ages until he returns. That is to say, at the Eucharist, Christ is sacrificed perpetually for the forgiveness of sins. To be fair to our Catholic friends, the Eucharist is primarily memorial in the practice of the Catholic Church. But there is, according to Catholic teaching, a real application of the sacrifice of Christ given to those who partake of the Eucharist, of the Lord's Supper. We understand, rather, from Scripture that since Christ has died once for all time as a perfect and sinless uh, and sufficient sacrifice... That he has no need, as Hebrews seven twenty seven says, no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. 
When we take the Lord's Supper here together as a church, as we'll do tonight as we worship together, I encourage you to come back this evening at 5 o'clock to share in that time. When we practice the Lord's Supper, we're not replaying Christ's death on the cross in a real way so as to receive His grace through the elements that we take. Rather, we understand that Uh, That the the bread and the cup that we eat and that we drink together signifies, it's a symbol of Christ's body and his blood. His body broken for us, his blood that he shed, the blood of the new covenant that that we have by faith in his name. We're remembering his sacrifice uh, for our sins, certainly, but we're not replaying that sacrifice over again because it doesn't need to be replayed. It's already been done once perfectly for all. In so doing it and taking it together, we signify the unity that God has brought to us through our faith in Christ, our sufficient Savior. So if you're a member of our church, I encourage you, uh, uh, be back here tonight at 5 p.m. as we share together in worship and in the Lord's Supper, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes and being united in the fellowship that we have around the Lord's table. Jesus' one-time death was enough to make propitiation for sins for all who would trust in him for all time. His one-time death was all at once satisfactory. It was all at once sufficient. And his one-time death was and as his one-time death was sufficient, so also his once and forever resurrection and reign as king are certain. Amen. Again, we turn to Hebrews 1 chapter 3 or chapter 1 verse 3. And there we read that after his death on the Christ, Jesus was seated at the right hand of majesty on high. This is a reference to Christ's certain resurrection from the dead, that it really happened. He really did ascend back to heaven to the right hand of the Father, as was asserted by the disciples and eyewitnesses of Jesus who saw this happen. We see it in the book of Acts, their testimony over and over again of the risen Jesus. We see it by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It had to happen. It did happen. Jesus as the son of God and the son of David, resurrected bodily from the dead, now sits at the right hand of the father, as the author of Hebrews says, as the heir of all things. Citing the 45th Psalm, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1 verses 8 and 9. Of the son of uh, of the son, he says that as God says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have, love, uh, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Odd is it not that the writer of Hebrews would attribute to God the Father the very words, Your throne, O God, to the Son. How can this be if the Son is God, just, if the Son is not God, just the same as the Father? Indeed, we have seen earlier, he is. Jesus is God, the same as the Father. So the Father can say to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and not be lying, not be confusing. The risen Jesus, Son of God, raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, now has all authority in heaven and on earth to rule and to reign in righteousness forever. The all-sufficient and unique Jesus as the perfect prophet, priest, and eternal king has given himself, friends, so that you can receive him and salvation simply by trusting in and clinging to him. Christian Jesus is so much more than a get-out-of-hell-free card. Jesus is Lord. He is God. 
His person is perfect. His work is complete. His kingdom is here. So be not content then with lesser versions of Jesus. Be not swayed by cable TV depictions of Jesus as a mere political revolutionary, a a zealot of his day. Be not foolish enough to say that Jesus is a good teacher and good example without recognizing that he is also God in the flesh who does not merely teach us what we ought to know about God, but who died and was raised again that we might know God. In the pages of scripture, we find that our unique and sufficient Lord Jesus is all and that all our faith is summed up and centered on him, the only son of God, the sufficient sacrifice for sins. Salvation does not come then from the Catholic church any more than it does from a Baptist church. It doesn't come from a Pope any more than it does Joseph Smith or Jonathan Edwards or this pastor. Forgiveness of sins and new life with your creator has come and now only comes by God's own free gift of grace by trusting the one and only Jesus, whose death and resurrection alone were sufficient to bring you to God. Friends, don't look to me to be saved. Don't look to the Pope to be saved. Don't look to religion or religious tradition to be saved. Friends, look to Jesus to be saved. The French reformer lived his life in Switzerland. John Calvin wrote this. And with this, I'll close. He says, we see that our whole salvation and all of its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of him. The name Jesus, Yeshua, means the Lord is salvation. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in His anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in His dominion. If purity, in His conception. If gentleness, it appears in His birth. If we seek redemption, it lies in His passion. That is, His his suffering. If acquittal, it lies in his condemnation. If remission of the curse, in his cross. If satisfaction, in his sacrifice. If purification, in his blood. If mortification of the flesh, in his tomb. If newness of life, in his resurrection. If immortality, in the same. If inheritance of the heavenly kingdom, in his entrance into heaven. If protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings, in his kingdom. If untroubled expectation of judgment in the power given to him to judge. In short, since such rich store of every kind of good abounds in him. John Calvin says, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. Solus Christus, Christ alone, confirms for us it is the conviction that Jesus, the only and unique son of God, none other like him ever, uh, ever has been or ever will be. A sufficient sacrifice for sinners. Friend, you you today who don't yet know Christ, who don't know the, the forgiveness of sins that he offers by his death and resurrection as you trust in him. Friend, know this today. Salvation, a right relationship with God is possible by trusting Jesus and only Jesus. So don't look to stuff to do. Don't try to appease God on your own. Don't try to make things right in your own power, but trust the only sinless son of God who has done that in your place. Give your life to him. Live your life in the power that he gives to you as you trust in him and walk faithfully with him. Christian, don't settle for lesser versions of Jesus. Let's pray.